Is Jesus king or not? And if so, who cares? If we say he's king of the cosmos, well, that's well. But what difference does it make? Now, you and I have all asked these questions to God in some form or another over our time. And the most powerful man in Judea, Pontius Pilate, is no exception. He asks Jesus a rather straightforward question, hoping to jam Jesus into a binary box of action. Are you a king? If yes, your reign is over. Please make your way to the praetorium where our torturers and whips will be with you shortly. If no, get out of here, out of Judea. Stop aggravating the scribes and making my life miserable. Make no mistake, this is a life or death question. Affirmation of his reign will lead to crucifixion by the Romans. Denial? Probably political exile, but at least he would remain intact with his life. Now this question of king and kingdoms is sort of sloppy for modern Americans because our pictures of those sorts of things are a bit skewed. All we have are tiaras and royal palaces. And will they have the next royal baby yet? I heard the People magazine found out. Yes, they will. So take off your modern view of kings and kingship and think about the implications for the man asking the question. In Pilate's eyes, a pure yes means Jesus is seeking to reign like one of the zealots. That was a group during Jesus' time that sought to regain Jewish autonomy through violence. These sort of scum were routine to Pilate, as was the the punishment that Rome used to deter such as rats from those rebellious rural backlands from places like Nazareth. Now, a pure no, on the other hand, means that Jesus is just another lunatic. A religious madman whose innocent ramblings about the afterlife and the kingdom of God really have no effect on his rule and therefore shouldn't be a problem. Certainly doesn't require murder. Now, one of the pieces of good news for you and me today is that Jesus doesn't do binary. Either or is not a categorization system of the kingdom of God. Now the Savior, therefore, responds with another question. Now, do you say this on your own, or did someone tell you that about me? Now, you have to applaud Jesus here, right? He has the guts to stand up to Pilate. This is the manifestation of the strongest empire the world has ever known. He has the power to level the entire city of Jerusalem. Certainly to kill Jesus. And in front of this strong and mighty power, Jesus goes up to him and says, Hmm, I hear your question, but I think there's something deeper there. What do you really mean? It's deep. So deep that he gets Pilate mad. And he responds, I'm not a Jew, am I? Look, you've been handed over to me by your own people. What have you done to get them so mad that They want me to brutally murder you. That's the rub. Jesus' inquisition works, right? What have you done? 
That's the deeper question. It's the one that Pilate asks then. It's the one that you and I ask now on Christ the King Sunday. What have you done, Jesus? Are you a king with a reign or not? If yes, if you do reign in this realm, in this time and place, then for the love of God, do something about this insidious creation that you allow to carry on with its wealth inequality and its dissolving atmospheres and terrorists and natural disasters? If no, then step aside so we can let one of our other idols take charge, so we can stop wasting our money with this church pledging and this homeless serving and this worship attending garbage. Huh. And if we're honest... On some days, we hope he'll say no. So then we can get our money back and buy that nice jersey we saw in the store. Or get our time back and have to stop serving the least of these all the time. Not having to worry about that treasures in heaven nonsense anymore, right? You and I aren't the only ones struggling. It turns out that everyone across the country is dealing with with this issue, especially youth. There's a white paper that was released after some funding by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation likes to fund uh, investigations into the intersection of faith and science. And this particular paper found that our youth are struggling to understand these two realms. Youth are told figured out through church, one way or another, that God is this transcendent, almighty being floating up here somewhere, probably sitting behind the choir somewhere. That's the transcendent God. But then there's this imminent world, the realm of empirical data and touch and taste and sight. And there's this place where they have to get their grades and get the sports team spots, and they have to do all this and then they're told there's this other beautiful thing. And so naturally, in order to be successful in the world, they try to get all their imminent ducks in a row, hoping that that transcendent God can come into play when they have time to go to church. But that's at the bottom of the priority list, right? The transcendent is easily trumped by the imminent. This is the problem of the binary, the problem of the either-or. Pilate's certainly not the first one to create such a categorization because he's not the first one who's ever had the power to do so. You see, it's people in power who are the ones that get to choose the categories, right? You're either this or that. You're either a federalist or an anti-federalist. You're either pro-life or you're pro-choice. There is nothing in the middle. You're either for us or you are against us. You and I have been conditioned into, into this false dualism because of preachers and theologians. With the rise of fundamentalism and other theological trends, there is this belief that Jesus floated up above the clouds, and then there is us people on the earth. Well, if Jesus wants us to go to heaven, 
Does that mean there are two kinds of people? There are the saved people. Right? The ones who have accepted Jesus into their heart, repented of their sin, have chosen the eternal life of the King of Heaven. Hallelujah! And then there's all those, well, who aren't. And because of this theological framing, we believe in a transcendent God, a God whose realm is up there. But in the meantime, we got to deal with the muck down here. Unless the muck down here helps me deal with the muck down here, unless going to church helps me deal with my grades and my work problems and my family life, I don't have time to deal with the transcendent. Jesus is up there. That's great. I'll see you when I croak. Pilate doesn't get Jesus' response because Pilate is trying to set a false dichotomy. It's not about that realm or this realm, but Jesus tells us that those two realms in him have become one. The kingdom has come in him. Now Jesus tries to tell this to Pilate, right? Pilate doesn't care. And since Pilate doesn't see it, I thought that trying to find the good news here, the gospel here, might require us to go to another section of the Bible. Let's go to the very end of it, actually. The very last book of the Bible, also known as Revelations, which I always thought was kind of a peculiar title. For the book, because when I read it, I don't get a revelation. I just get confused. Or at least I did for a long time. Until very recently, when I heard somebody help me understand the context of this book. John of Patmos is writing, and there's these dragons and these lions and all this other mythical wildlife flying around. All kind of sounds like prehistoric gibberish. But understand that the letter was written to a church that was suffering. They're getting massacred by the Roman Empire, tortured, discriminated against, beaten, often rejected for their active living out of the good news that God cares about everybody. Then, in the midst of this persecution, John writes to the churches and tells them that despite their pain, despite the fear of this murderous Roman Empire. It is not the Romans who will win, but one animal, one alone, rises up in the cacophony of mythical creatures as the symbol for the victor in that great cosmic battle between good and evil. It's not a griffin, not a cherubim or the seraphim, or a horseman, and there are some within the book of Revelation who think it's a lion, but then they inspect more closely and see it's a slaughtered lamb. A slaughtered lamb. A bloody sheep. Now the message would have been clear to the early church. Their kingdom isn't going to be established with the tools of war that they knew so well. Their church wasn't going to be established with 
power and strength. Their supremacy was not going to be established through defeating that strongest empire in the world with swords and spears, but by instead emulating the slaughtered lamb of God who offered himself up on the cross in nonviolent resistance. That power, that act of God, causes the other creatures to cry out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Any fans here of Handel's Messiah, who hath redeemed us to God by his blood, to receive riches and glory and power and blessing, blessing and honor and glory and power, be unto him who sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. Not our weapons, but the sacrifice of our God. Not our violence, but the love of the Holy Spirit. Not our empires, but the humility of the suffering servant. Revelation is resistance literature, my friends. It's the year AD version, year 100 AD version of come together right now. Or perhaps you prefer war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. John declares unequivocally that his apocalyptically prescribed scene is the intersection between heaven and earth, that the slaughtered lamb has come to earn power by love. And so we see this scene brought down in the last chapter of the book. A new Jerusalem is planted, not up there, but here, in this realm, where we're promised there'll be no more tears, no more crying. No more pain, no more terrorism, but we will dwell with the Lamb. And so the author cries out, come, Lord Jesus. So, does Jesus reign? I invite you to look at your bulletin. On the front of the bulletin is an image. I want you to think about this early Christian who would have had this put on their sarcophagus as I read you this first section of Revelation. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Now, how do you think the early church would have responded to that question? Do you think Jesus reigns? I've discovered in my short time as a pastor that you figure out what people really care about at the end of their life, especially what they decide to get etched on their tombstone. 
in Ohio. I saw a lot of Ohio State and University of Michigan emblems as we walked around the cemetery. This Christian, likely persecuted, likely suffered under the Roman Empire, decided to hire a stonemason to implant the Alpha and the Omega on his sarcophagus, proclaiming that the slaughtered lamb, the resurrected Christ, is the one who wins the battle. Can the same be said for you and I, my friends? Can people in your lives, your friends, and your family, can they look in on you and see clearly whether you believe that Christ reigns here and now? It doesn't really matter if Christ reigns in some future land once we've escaped from this deadly world. It doesn't really matter if Christ reigns sometime in the future or used to do miracles in the past. The question is not, does it happen in the past, but does it happen now? Is Christ reigning in this world and in our lives? Craig Barnes, who's now the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, preached a sermon that I'll never forget. He was talking about the feeding of the 5,000. And he said, the question is not, did the miracle happen, but does the miracle happen? Well, my friends in Christ, I bring you good news of great joy that the miracle does happen, that Christ is reigning in this place, here and now. I've seen it. Have you? I've seen it when endless amounts of sandwiches are made to fight hunger for those who come in through the TAP program. I've seen the reign of Christ as some of our volunteers spend endless hours teaching English as a second language down the hall. I've seen the reign of Christ as there are so many of you who spend countless hours volunteering to spend time with my children, God bless you, in Sunday school teaching them about the subversive love of God for every human being. I saw it Thursday night. I saw the reign of Christ Thursday night when the Washington Interfaith Network came together. 600 Christians, Muslims, and Jews all descended on Covenant, Baptist, UCC, and Anacostia. And we talked to Mayor Bowser and General Manager George Hawkins of the Water Department and said, it's time for D.C. General to get shut down and for regional shelters to pop up in our neighborhoods where we can be in relationship with those who are suffering at this time. It was beautiful. I see the reign of Christ in an organization called Carry the Future. My wife handed me her phone last night. There's a picture of a Syrian refugee woman and a story underneath. It says, we approached this family holding a large bundle of blankets, and we assumed there was a baby wrapped inside. We gasped as they unwrapped a precious little one-week-old baby. We dug through our bags to find an ergo, which we were saving for an extra special family. This is an organization that gives out baby carriers to refugees. And ergos, as parents know, are top-of-the-line baby carriers. I had to hold back tears on this one, the author writes. It felt amazing to know this bundle was safe on Mama's chest where they both could feel comforted. 
And I had to hold back tears, realizing that I had seen a picture of the reign of Christ, the refugee from Nazareth, on a refugee from Syria. Christ reigns, my friends, here and now, in this time and place. And there's no other kind of faith that matters. So ask yourselves this question. Can people see in my life that Christ reigns? When others look at me, will they see a Jesus that's in the clouds somewhere? Or a Christ who I've pledged full allegiance to here and now? Figure out where you spend your money, your time, what you spend your mind thinking about. And may Christ reign most deeply in those places. And all God's people said, Amen.